Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, The Divide. And we begin with a quote from a man that is known to scholars as Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. In a commentary on the names of God, he wrote, quote, The one is a unity which is the unifying source of all unity and a super-essential essence, a mind beyond the reach of mind and a word beyond utterance, eluding discourse, intuition, name, and every kind of being. It is the universal cause of existence while itself existing not, for it is beyond all being and such that it alone could give a revelation of itself." If that sounds more like something an Eastern guru would come up with, don't worry, you're right. Dionysus isn't called pseudo for nothing. We'll get to him a bit deeper into our episode today. The late 5th and 6th centuries saw important developments in the Eastern Church. It's the time of the premier Byzantine emperor, Justinian. But two contemporaries of his also made important contributions to the most important institutions of the medieval church in the West. One of them we've already mentioned in brief, the other we'll devote an entire episode to, Bernedict of Nursia and Pope Gregory the Great. By the end of the 6th century, the unique characteristics of the Eastern and Western churches had coalesced into two different traditions. While the West remained loyal to the pattern held at Rome, the East emerged in three directions— The major councils held at Ephesus and Chalcedon to decide the issue raised by the debate between Cyril of Alexandria and Astorius, bishop of Constantinople, over the nature of Christ, well, that produced a three-way split in the Eastern Church. That split continues to this day and is seen in what's called the, number one, Chalcedonian or Byzantine Orthodox Church, number two, those called Monophysites or Oriental Orthodox which follows the theological line of Cyril, and, number three, the Nestorian Church of the East. Without going into all of the intricate details of the debates, suffice it to say that the Eastern Church wasn't satisfied with the Western-inspired formula describing the nature of Jesus adopted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. In a scenario reminiscent of what happened all the way back at the First Council of Nicaea in 325, While they concluded the Council of Chalcedon with an agreed creed, some bishops later hemmed and hawed over the verbiage. To those Eastern bishops beholden to Cyril, Chalcedon sounded too Nestorian to accept. Chalcedon said that Jesus was one person in two natures. The balking bishops wanted to alter that to say that he was out of two natures before the Incarnation and after he was one nature. Now, for those listening to several of these podcasts in a row, rather than spaced out over several weeks, I know that this sounds repetitious. In a brief summary, let me recap Cyril's and Nestorius' views. Regarding how to understand who Jesus is, that is, how his identities as both God and man related to each other, Cyril said that he was both God and man, but that the divine so overwhelmed the human, it became virtually meaningless. The analogy was that his humanity was like a drop of ink in the ocean of his divinity. Therefore, Mary was the Theotokos, the mother of God. Nestorius balked at that title, saying that Mary was Jesus' human mother, who became the means by which Jesus was human, but that she should not be called the mother of God. Nestorius said that Jesus was both human and divine, and emphasized his humanity and the role that it played in the redemption of lost sinners. 
because Nestorius reacted to what he considered the aberrant position of Cyril, and because he lacked tact and didn't know when to shut up, his opponents claimed that he taught that Jesus wasn't just of two natures, but he was of two persons living in the same body. And for that, he was branded a heretic. But when the Council of Chalcedon finally issued its official stand on what comprised Christian orthodoxy regarding the person and natures of Jesus, Nestorius said that they had only articulated what he'd always taught. So it's little wonder that post-Chalcedon bishops of the Cyrillian slant rejected Chalcedon. Their view left the humanity of Jesus as an abstract and impersonal dimension of his nature. Because they so emphasized his deity at the cost of his humanity, they were branded as monophysites, or sometimes you'll hear it pronounced as monophysites. Sadly, just as those labeled Nestorian weren't heretical as the name came to mean, the term monophysite is also inaccurate because they didn't deny Jesus' humanity. The Greek prefix mono implies only one nature. A better descriptor is henophysite. Hen is the Greek prefix meaning one, but without the only limiter. But the Eastern pushback on Chalcedon wasn't just theological. It was also nationalistic. The church in Egypt went into revolt after the council because at the council, their patriarch Dioscorsus had been deposed. Then in Canon 28 of the council's creed, Constantinople was elevated to second only to Rome in terms of prestige. So both Alexandria and Antioch got their togas in a bunch. Those bishops who supported Chalcedon were labeled as Melkites, meaning royalists, because they supported the imperial church. We've noted that while the Western emperor was out of the picture by this time, so that the Roman pope stood as a kind of lone figure leading the West, the Eastern emperor at Constantinople still wielded tremendous authority in the church. We might wonder, therefore, why they didn't step in to settle the issue about the nature of Christ. And they wanted to. Several of them would have liked to have repudiated Chalcedon, but their hands were tied because there was only one part of the council that they wanted to keep, Canon 28, setting up Constantinople as technically Rome's second, but in reality, her equal. Now, as I study the material that follows the debates between the Henophysites and the Chalcedonians, I found myself at a loss on how to relate it without boring the bejeebers out of you. I spent quite a bit of time working, editing, re-editing, deleting, restoring, and deleting again before deciding to just say that in the East, during the 5th and 6th centuries, just about everybody was caught up in this thing. Emperors, bishops, patriarchs, metropolitans, monks, priests, even the common people. There's technical words like encyclion, henoticon, severin, acacian, that are employed to define the different sides taken in the debate, and those who tried to forge a compromise. And let me tell you, those guys, the ones that tried to forge a compromise, failed miserably. They got hammered by both sides. Regarding the long debate over the natures of Jesus in the East, Everett Ferguson says that the irony is that the Chalcedonians, Hanophysites, and the Church of the East were really trying to say the same thing about Jesus. He was somehow, at the same time, two somethings, but a single individual. Their different starting points gave them different formulations that their opponents couldn't accept for theological reasons and wouldn't for political reasons. Switching gears, around AD 500, one of the most influential thinkers in Greek Orthodox spirituality made his mark. 
Pseudo Dionysus the Areopagite. His real name is unknown to us. He claimed to be Dionysus, one of Paul's Athenian converts that's mentioned in Acts chapter 17. His contemporaries accepted his writings as legit. We know they weren't. Pseudo Dionysius combined Christianity and Neoplatonism into a mishmash, slapdash theology that appealed to both Chalcedonians and Henophysites. Probably because when you read it, you inwardly say, What? But you have to nod your head saying how amazing it was so you don't appear stupid. Like when I read or listen to Stephen Hawking waxing eloquent on some tangent of astrophysics, I say, Wow, that guy's brilliant but don't ask me to explain what I just heard. He's using English words, but it might as well be ancient Akkadian as far as understanding. Besides being a Neoplatonist, Pseudo-Dionysus was also a mystic, meaning someone who claimed to have had an experience of union with God, not just a deep sense of connection to him, but an actual uniting with the essence of deity. Pseudo-Dionysus became the author of a branch of Christian mysticism that was hugely influential in Eastern Christianity. When his work was translated into Latin in the 9th century, he then became influential in the West as well. Pseudo-Dionysus' writings stressed a tendency already found in Greek Christian authors like Origen, Athanasius, and Gregory of Nyssa, who said that the goal of human salvation was a kind of, well, making humans divine. Now, we need to be careful here, because as soon as I say that, all the Western Christians say, wait, what? Back the truck up, Billy Bob. I think we just ran over something. There is in Eastern Orthodoxy a different understanding of salvation from that of Roman Catholicism and classic Protestantism. Eastern Orthodoxy understands that the saved are destined to a level of glory in heaven that is on an order of existence that can only properly be described as, well, divine. No, humans don't become gods, not like the one true and only creator God, but they were created originally in his image and will be restored to and completed in that image so that they will be as much like God as a created being can be and still not be God. This quasi-deification is attained by purification, illumination, and perfection, meaning union with God which became the three stages of enlightenment that was espoused by classic mysticism. Okay, hang on with me as we go deep. Pseudo-Dionysus identified three stages in how someone seeking the fullness of salvation can describe God. Number one, by giving him a name. That's known as affirmative theology. Number two, then denying that name was called negative theology. And third, reconciling the contradiction by looking beyond language was referred to as superlative theology. The way of negation led to the contemplation that marks mystical theology, which was considered a simpler and purer way to understand God. Now, I I realize this is really confusing, so let me put it this way. In mysticism, it's easier to know who and what God is by concentrating on what he's not. And if that seems backward and nonsensical, welcome to the club of those who aren't mystics and just scratch their heads when the mystics start talking. Pseudo-Dionysus' arrangement of angels into nine levels became the basis for the medieval doctrine of angels. 
Reading Pseudo-Dionysus can be frustrating for those who try to parse out his logic and seek to discern in his words some profound truths. While all very spiritual-sounding, they're typical of many such mystical tomes, a cascade of words that defy interpreting. The mind is set in a place of trying to reconcile competing and ultimately contradictory ideas. This tension causes the reader to mentally shut down, and it's in, well, quite frankly, that state of suspended reason that the soul is supposed to be able to connect to God. It's the same effect as repeated mantras and Eastern-style meditation. Still, Pseudo-Dionysus was extremely influential in shaping how countless Christians of the 6th through the 10th centuries went about seeking to grow in their relationship with God. Today, we dismiss him by calling him Pseudo, fake, fraud, the poser Dionysus. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.